0: For those of us who are involved with startups and with technology, we've all heard or many of us have heard about the lean startup movement, minimal viable products, iterating, and fast failure, things like that, concepts like that. What happens when you apply these concepts to doing social good, to making social impact? That's our topic today on CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk, and you're watching episode number 314. Before I introduce our guest, please, please, right now, subscribe on YouTube and also tell your friends and your colleagues. So I'm really thrilled because we're speaking with Anne May Chang, who is the author of the book Lean Impact. It's a really, really good book. I've enjoyed reading it, and she's going to tell us about applying lean startup techniques to making social impact. Anne May, how are you? It's great to see you, and thank you for being on CXO Talk.
1: I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Michael.
0: So, Anne May, tell us uh, how did you come to write the book Lean Impact? Well, tell us about your background briefly.
1: Yeah, so just to start with my own background, I studied as a software engineer in college and then worked in Silicon Valley at both big and small tech companies um, for over 20 years. Um, some companies you may have heard of, like Google and Apple and Intuit. Um, and it was uh, an enormously challenging and exciting world to be in. You know, I got to be part of building products like Google Mobile Maps that are used by hundreds of millions, if not a billion, people these days. Um, but then, about seven years ago, I decided to make a long plan pivot to spend the second half of my career in the social sector or, or public sector, doing something that would feel more meaningful to make the world a better place. And so, through that, I went to work in government at the State Department, at an international NGO called Mercy Corps, and then most recently at USAID as a chief innovation officer.
0: And so, you had this background working in technology, but how did you come up with the idea of applying the techniques of lean startups? to making to to nonprofits and to and to making a social providing social benefit. Yeah,
1: it was really an evolution. You know, there's not that many people who span both worlds. And you know, I spent so much of my career in the tech sector that lean startup was essentially in my blood. In fact, um when I first went into government, you know, it was a, a big shock in a way, because things work so differently in government than they do in Silicon Valley. Um, and one of those things is that, you know, in government we like to plan um in a lot of detail for years in advance and then execute on those plans because we're you know We're very risk adverse. Um, we're very planning oriented culture. Um, and so you know, what I found myself doing was really encouraging people to plan a little less and do a little bit more um, and really get out in the field and try things and learn and iterate. And it was it was sort of like just the instinct that I had. And at the time I hadn't actually picked up the lean startup yet. Um, I was in DC and it wasn't as as much a thing uh, there yet. And and so I didn't necessarily have a language for it. Um, But, when I found out that Eric had written this book, uh, Lean Startup, and and started learning about it, it gave me a language to talk about these concepts that I was really trying to explain to people and didn't really make sense to them up to that point.
0: So It just kind of um, was an evolution that you had been steeped in these lean startup techniques and principles and approaches, and it just made sense to try to apply it to this completely different world.
1: Yeah, I mean, coming from Silicon Valley and into this world of global development that I was in, everybody wanted to approach me and talk about technology and talk about, you know, could I build an app or a website or so forth. And, you know, I, I certainly tried to help where I could. But what I started to believe as I learned more and more about what was going on is that while technology could make a big difference in many of the things that were being done, that a different way of working, a different mindset, a different approach, um, as exemplified by the lean startup could help us just produce far greater impact at far greater scale.
0: So, when you talk about lean impact, what is that exactly?
1: Well, maybe I should just back up a little bit for the parts of the audience maybe who aren't yet familiar with Lean Startup and talk a little bit about that. Um, The Lean Startup is a book that was written by Eric Ries about seven years ago. Um, and What it did is it captures really the best practices of how innovation happens in Silicon Valley. and eric talks about the lean startup as a methodology for building products and services under conditions of extreme uncertainty and this is certainly true for startup companies who are trying to create products and services that no one's ever done before and so there's a lot of uncertainty there and in this world of uncertainty uh, you know rather than trying to think we have all the answers and come up with a great plan that we can and invest a ton in that plan i think we need to be a little bit more humble and really understand where our assumptions are, understand what the risks are, and test for them. In, in essence, Lean Startup is based on… I, I think of it as an entrepreneurial version of the scientific method that you, know, you have a hypothesis about you have a solution that you hope will work for to solve a certain problem. You build what we call an MVP or minimum viable product to test that assumption. Um, then you measure the results. You gather data on what happened and then you learn. You learn that it worked exactly as you hoped and you can double down or maybe you learned that it didn't work as you expected and you either need to tweak your solution or pivot and take a completely different path.
0: Okay, so this concept of minimal viable product, it, you know, in technology that's what people talk about quite a bit when you're when you're building companies, but how do you then apply that to the world of nonprofits? I mean, it's it's not an easy translation to 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 make for, for an outsider.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And that's one of the many challenges that makes innovating for social good harder. So a minimum viable product is essentially trying to come up with the smallest, quickest, cheapest way to learn about something where you have a high degree of uncertainty. And and again, in the in the social sector, we often are trying to solve problems that are long time and intractable and in conditions that are highly dynamic. And so there is a lot of uncertainty, and there's a lot that we need to learn. So The question to ask is What is the cheapest, quickest way we can learn something about whether something will work? Um, Just as an example, um, in, in in, in Africa, there's been an advent of a number of different companies that are offering. Home solar systems using a new business model called uh, using mobile money, where people can pay a few cents every day using mobile money to be able to purchase their home solar system over time because people aren't able to have the upfront capital to be able to pay for these solar systems um, upfront. And so, you know, one way you might do this is, you know, build out these new systems with all the technology, manufacture them, then hire a whole sales force and distribute them. But a company called Off Grid Electric that I spoke to, the way they you know, they thought this was a great idea, but they knew it needed to be tested. And so what they did was actually just send a person from village to village to collect money manually first to see would people Buy a solar system and pay it off over time. Is that something people would find valuable enough where they keep paying the money? And only after they showed that people would do that, did they actually manufacture the systems and 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 uh, deploy them in a way that could really be scaled. And so it's just one example. I mean, MVP could be as simple as a flyer. Um, Which they also use to test out to see, hey, what kind of bundles would people be more interested in? Would they like to have a bundle with um, just some lights, or is a radio important, or maybe even a TV? Would they be willing to pay more? And so, answering these kinds of questions, the goal is to look at the simplest, quickest way that we can answer those questions. And that's a minimum viable product.
0: And so, when it comes to uh, service delivery, delivering non or social and beneficial services, it's a matter of uh, taking small steps, experimenting, see what works, and then building on that. Is that would that be an accurate way of looking at it?
1: Yeah, it's it's taking the small step possible and 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 optimizing for learning, right? So if you know one way I think about it is if you know exactly what you need to do and you know it's going to work and you know how you're going to scale it then you should just execute on that plan. You should execute like a utility company might do because they know what they need to deliver and they know how to deliver it. But if you're trying to do something that has a lot of uncertainty, then rather than focusing on delivering because you don't know if it's going to work, you should focus on experimenting and learning as quickly as possible until you have greater confidence in what you have to offer. Sort of, you know, the off grid electric I talked about is more in the product space, but on the service side of things, Uh, an organization I talked to, a nonprofit social enterprise in South Africa called Harambe, was really trying to address the issue of youth unemployment, which is at crisis proportions in South Africa. Um, And they wanted to see, like, how can we help these youth who are disadvantaged get their first formal sector job? And so rather than, again, you know, coming up with a whole training curriculum, hiring a bunch of staff, building a bunch of infrastructure. They first started by um, uh, testing some of these youth and and having some assessments to see how they would do on the kinds of skills that they would need for jobs. And they found that they didn't do very well at all, um, and which is why they weren't matching these jobs. And so they decided to take a different approach. They decided to test for learning potential and then help bridge that gap for the youth who had the potential to learn but just never had the opportunities. And again, instead of building up a whole system, they partnered with an employment firm and uh, some consultants who, who rather than hiring staff, they hired some uh, contracting firm to offer the training to see would this work if they took um, these disadvantaged youth with potential but without the skills, could they train them in a few days to develop the skills and then get the jobs? And so they did that exactly. And um, at the end of it, they had trained 43 youth, built up very little infrastructure. And 38 of them were able to secure jobs at the end of it. The employers were happy with their skills and hired them. And so that gave them the confidence to then do more, to develop a more formal curriculum, to hire their own staff, and so forth.
0: I want to remind everybody that we're speaking right now with Anne May Cheng, who is the author of the book Lean Impact. And it's a really good book. She applies the techniques of lean startups, such as minimal viable products and iterating and experimenting and learning quickly to social benefit programs and social good to make the greatest impact. And right now there's a tweet chat taking place and you can ask Anne May questions using the hashtag CXOTalk. So Anne May, for, for people who are coming out of the tech world, what you're describing is a very natural way of working and it's sort of what we expect. But, how is this different from the world of nonprofits to such a degree that that you had to write a book about it?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. I get that question a lot. Um, you know, I think the need is equally there, that we are equally trying to solve tough problems at large scale. And so when we're tackling social challenges, we need tools to innovate. It's also a lot harder, honestly. Um, And there's a number of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is the nature of funding. In, in if you're at a tech company or even just at any sort of business, you usually have a customer that you're trying to serve, and you build a product or service for them, and their customer pays for that product or service. And so there's a direct feedback loop. If if people don't like your product, they aren't going to pay for it, and so you learn very quickly if you're on on the mark or not. When you're when you're talking about social good a lot of times who's paying for your product is different than the customer um, and so you have this you have already this complication where your feedback loop is you know involves two very different parties who have maybe two very different interests and so that that complicates things it makes it harder to drive your feedback loop on top of that. Funders um, in in the social sector, you know, especially funders for nonprofits, tend to be very restrictive. They want to know your whole plan up front and then see you execute on that plan. They're often also very risk averse. They're looking for immediate results, and that also makes it hard to innovate. It makes it hard to pivot and experiment and take risks. Um, and so, some of these systemic constraints make it very difficult for nonprofits, in particular, to be able to. Do the sort of testing and iteration that's needed to innovate. And on top of the funding side of the equation, there's also some innate challenges. So it's just harder to measure social impact like, you know, are you breaking the cycle of poverty? Are you making a a society more resilient and democratic? Are you, um, you know, developing, you know, uh, are you helping kids uh, get better education? these are things that take time, often to answer, much harder than, for example, seeing if somebody makes an e-commerce purchase. Um, so, so that's uh, you know, these kinds of challenges exist in in the social sector that don't exist in the tech world or even in the business world. It's also, I think, we need to be much more. Thoughtful and careful when we're experimenting with people who are vulnerable already. Um, you know, we're, this is, we we can't do the Silicon Valley thing of move fast and break things because we're talking about real people here in real lives.
0: What about the the culture? I mean, it's, it's well, it's very interesting what you were just saying about the the outcome of social programs take time and can be very hard to measure. In contrast to developing an app where you simply see, okay, how many times was our app downloaded and we can instrument that app and see how, how many people are using it and how they're using it. Social programs are very different. And as you said, with an app, we can experiment and if we if the app breaks, we release a new fix. And with social program, it's it's real people's lives. So it's much more complex. So so given all of this, then how is it even possible to to again apply these minimal viable product uh, techniques to social programs?
1: yeah and so this is what a lot of the book is about and you know lean startup talks about the importance of starting small and I would say in the social sector, it's even more important to do so when we're working with people who are vulnerable if you're trying to something new with just Five or ten people, you can be a lot more careful to unintended consequences and to make sure that people are made whole, um, and to just be much more vigilant than you can when you're trying to do something with ten thousand. And so, I would say that um, starting small becomes even more crucial. And to your question about, you know, how do we measure these things? It does take time to, for example, see if you know you're going to make a change to um, your 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 educational pedagogy, whether that's going to affect graduation rates for kids over time. That does take time, but you can actually make. Um, you can actually look at some of the precursors some of the early indicators that will correlate with whether that's going to happen a lot of times we call this in the social sector a theory of change that you know we do a that leads to b that leads to c that leads to d and if we test and Optimize for those early precursors that can give us much higher likelihood that in the fullness of time will be successful. Just as an example of that, um, there's a nonprofit called Summit Public Schools in the U.S. um, that is that set out with a goal to educate kids in high school such that 100% would graduate college, no matter what their their um, kind of family background. And this is something that take a long time. And so when they first started out with their first school, they they introduced a lot of the sort of uh, cutting edge techniques. And what they found is that um, eight years later, when their first cohort graduated college, that they were doing dramatically better than than uh, than the average. But it wasn't good enough to them. It wasn't yet hundred percent, which was a the goal they set out to to achieve. But then they realized that if they were going to start with another cohort and change their methodology, it would take another eight years and they couldn't afford to do that. So it turned out um, the, the founder picked up Eric's book, Lean Startup, um, and decided that they needed to figure out how to iterate and learn much more quickly and, and get data much more quickly if they were going to have any hope of doing, you know, coming up with a better solution in this generation. And so they did. Um, in this very difficult world of education, they used data. To be able to measure on a weekly basis different approaches to to education. They would vary um, the the mix of different elements, such as project time and individual self-paced learning time and lecture time and mentorship time, and see what worked. And each week they would have different assessments to see how the students were progressing. They would have focus groups um, and so forth that would measure the progress. And with that, over the course of a year, um, in a few classrooms, they were they were able to evolve and develop a award winning personalized learning um, approach that has now been adopted by over three hundred schools across the country.
0: So, on the topic of metrics, we have a very interesting question from Twitter, Arsalan Khan, who who's a regular listener. And Arsalan, we're always glad when you're here. Arsalan asks: Are there any social impact? Indices and metrics that can be used when technology is applied to social impact programs? He has, actually has two questions. That's number one. And number two is how transferable are they to other countries out of outside the US?
1: So the, the question is about social impact metrics. I think. It, Some people have tried to aggregate metrics of cross-social impact, and I think that's very challenging because the nature of, if you're trying to reduce infant mortality versus you're trying to increase college graduation rates versus you're trying to improve women's empowerment is very, very different. So, I think that metrics that are useful generally need to be specific to the problem you're trying to solve. And Again, I would point to the theory of change where you look at what is your ultimate goal of what you're hoping to achieve and work back from there. It's, in, the, in essence, a funnel that, that shows you, you know, in each step of the way, how much success are you going to have so you get to the end. I'll use a simple example that I uh, describe in the book, which is um, if you're trying to reduce the incidence of malaria in a region uh, by distributing mosquito nets, you know, your end goal might be to reduce the incidence of malaria by 80%. But, if you look at the the early precursors, you're going to give out mosquito nets. The first thing that has to happen is people have to hang up the mosquito nets. Then they have to sleep under the mosquito nets they hung up and so forth. And And then that should lead to fewer incidences of malaria over time. So, rather than waiting for years to determine whether malaria has decreased, you can check tomorrow to see, did people actually hang up their mosquito nets? And if they didn't hang up their mosquito nets, there's something you can do immediately the next day. You could decide to go out and hang it up for them. You could decide to issue instructional pamphlets that show them how to do it. You could have uh, training classes in the village to show people how to do it. You, um, there's a number of things you could do. And if you optimize the number of people who hang up those mosquito nets, you're far more likely. A few years later, to have um, less transmission of malaria. And so it's looking for what are those early precursors? for whatever is the social impact you're trying to achieve? what are the the early earliest indicators that will tell you that you are on track and that if you optimize those things in the beginning, you're more likely to be successful.
0: What about the the culture or the mindset? Because in startups are are trained. startups are under this intense pressure from investors and they're going to soon run out of money many of them most of them unless they deliver something really fast so they're under this pressure to identify the the minimal viable product and just get it out there as quickly as they can and they're not most of them are not playing with people's lives so they can you know do that and a lot of times the a lot of times the minimal viable products are not that great so what about the nonprofit world uh, in terms of that, that mindset and the culture?
1: Um, that's a great question. I think that the culture derives from incentives, and incentives derive from goals. Um, and so if you think about it, I believe that innovation at its foundation comes from it, it, the birthplace of innovation is in an audacious goal. You imagine um, you know President Kennedy you know challenging us to send a man to the moon. when you have a, if, when you have goals and that are achievable with business as usual or with some minor improvements to business as usual, there's no reason to take risks or to innovate. And I think that often is true in the way nonprofits are funded. They're funded to do something that we know how to do and that we can deliver you know relatively immediate results and do so with high confidence. Um, but again, if we have problems that we're trying to solve, which that's not going to be sufficient in solving, I would argue that we need to set much more audacious goals. And so the first place that I start with with lean impact is to say we need to think bigger. Um, you know, the the core of lean impact is about thinking bigger and starting smaller. And instead, I think when it comes to social good, we often think too small and start too big. So how do we flip that around and set an audacious goal? Because when you have a, a goal that is 10 times what you're doing today or 100 times what you're doing today, and you, you're just not going to get there with your current path, Then it forces you to take risks and it forces you to test and iterate to find a better way. And and When you start setting up the incentives that way, then I think the culture starts to shift around really being more more agile because you're trying to do something you can't do just by doing the same old thing.
0: Once again, I want to remind everybody we're talking with Ann May Chang, who is the author of the book, Lean Impact. It's a really good book. It's very well written. and oh, and of course, there's a tweet chat that's happening right now using the hashtag #CXOTalk. So please join us, and you can ask your questions for Anne May. So, Anne May, you were the Chief Innovation Officer at USAID, and innovation is really top of mind for you. And so, so let's overlay the concept of innovation into what we've just been talking about.
1: Sure. so innovation seems to have become the most overused word in the English language these days. Everyone's talking about innovation, whether it's in Silicon Valley or in business or in government or in the social sector.
0: Amen to that. Amen to that. yes.
1: yes. and and I think that there's a reason for this. It's because the pace of change around the world has only continued to accelerate. And so we recognize that if we're going to keep up and keep stay relevant, we're going to have to innovate. All of us are going to have to innovate because the world isn't standing still. Um, but in the in the world of social good, I think that the notion of innovation has been somewhat misunderstood as it's been translated. That people think of innovation as coming up with some flashy new ideas, coming up using the latest kind of exponential technology, and that is a piece of innovation, but it's not all of innovation. Um, one of my favorite quotes comes from Thomas Edison, who said that. Um, genius is one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration, and I would say the same thing is true for innovation. That there's that one percent that is the, you know, the big idea, the invention, the 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 new th- thing to do. But innovation is really about the ninety nine percent, which is the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into taking that germ of an idea and testing it. Iterating, improving it, developing a business model, figuring out how to build out the infrastructure, and ultimately scaling it. And that blood, sweat, and tears is really what the book is about, and what I think the in, the essence of innovation is about. Uh, a friend of mine uh, has a quote that I love, which says that innovation is the path but impact is the destination and i think we always need to keep that in mind that the reason to innovate is not to have a flashy press release but rather to dramatically increase our impact and scale and
0: when you apply that lesson that the goal of innovation is impact or in business we call it outcomes when you apply that to social benefit programs can you give us some examples of what that what that means in practice?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a great example that I love because it shows a whole cycle of evolution of how an uh, an organization might think about impact. So there's a invention, a 700 year old invention that can improve productivity and learning potential, and that's eyeglasses. And so this is not a new invention; it's something that's been around for 700 years, and yet there's an estimated two and a half billion people around the world that can benefit from it that don't have eyeglasses today. And so, a, a nonprofit called Vision Spring decided to tackle this problem. And they started out by doing what most nonprofits do, which is go directly to the people and set up shop. And they brought on a number of people they called vision entrepreneurs, who in El Salvador and in India ended up uh, selling these low cost glasses to. People in rural communities that didn't have access. And it was very successful. I mean, they have great stories of how they transformed people's lives who couldn't see at all or you know, could see badly and were now able to work or learn in ways that they never could before. So they had these compelling stories. But, but they had this bigger vision of this 2.5 billion number. And they recognized that as much as they were making a difference, they were losing money. And they, you know, they were never going to raise enough money to get to that many people. So, their first pivot is that they changed their model to set up a hub and spoke model in more urban areas where they could sell higher end eyeglasses and, with the profits from that, cross subsidize outreach to more rural areas. This allowed them to become financially sustainable so that they could um, fund their own operations. That was a huge step forward, but they also recognized that while they were financially sustainable, it wasn't enough because to build out the infrastructure to get to the two and a half billion people around the world would take decades. Um, and so they pivoted again and they decided to work through partnerships. So they partnered with a large organization in Bangladesh called BRAC that had a network of community healthcare workers that were spread throughout the country and basically every corner of the country. And were able to work with them to add eyeglasses to their um, basket of goods, and so it was a benefit to Brac because they had something of value to an additional item of value that they could offer to um, the, the people they were trying to serve, and also for VisionSpring they had this distri- distribution network built in, and so together in that partnership they were a, they've been able to date to distribute over a million pairs of eyeglasses, and VisionSpring today has now reached over four and a half million people. Again, using a, having built a number of additional partnerships. But even that's not enough. I mean, as a nonprofit, we think for four and a half million, that's pretty good, right? Um, but it's tiny compared to two and a half billion. And so their most recent pivot is that they recognize that this was still not going to get to the scale that was needed. Um, and they spun out an organization called the Alliance. That's a public private partnership that's focused on collective action to heal both market failures and policy failures that are the reason why people aren't getting access to eyeglasses, that people that businesses aren't manufacturing and distributing them and that governments aren't including them in, in the, the um, social services that they provide for citizens. And so, in an early win, they have signed a MOU with the government of Liberia who is now integrating eyeglasses into their uh, national community healthcare worker network as well as into their public schools. And so, now this will spread across the country. Through government effort. And if we can start doing that across many, many other countries, you can imagine eventually getting to that 2.5 billion people. And so it's this kind of evolution of continuing to look at the audacious goal, in this case, 2.5 billion, and recognizing where we are relative to that goal and being willing and able to pivot along the way as we learn um, to get better and better and closer and closer to a path that will get us to that goal.
0: We have another question from Twitter. And that is, uh, do these techniques apply best to any particular type of nonprofit, such as those that are involved with technology, for example, or, or are these techniques uh, applicable across the board?
1: Yeah, I would say the the techniques for lean startup techniques are fairly applicable across the board. Um, most of the examples I gave today are not technology based, um, and it's certainly I would say lean grew out of the technology space, and it's much easier in many ways to apply lean principles when you're working with technology because you have built-in systems when people are online to run an A-B test where you can show one uh, version of a product to some users and another version to another set of users and then, in an hour, figure out um, what the difference was in terms of their response. So It's much faster and it's much quicker. It, lo- it can look a little bit different when you're distributing eyeglasses or when you're training disadvantaged youth. But the same principles apply, which is to find the smallest, quickest experiment that you could run to learn, learn from that, and then decide whether to double down, take a slightly different path, or pivot altogether. And so, um, and and one thing I would add in that is that I, I want to be clear that Lean Impact isn't only about nonprofits. Um, in this day and age, social good is something that we're all thinking about, not just nonprofits. You know Many years ago it's like social good is the domain of nonprofits and making money is the domain of business. And I see those two words, worlds really blurring and coming together, which I think is a very positive thing. So now businesses are thinking more about doing good. And nonprofits are thinking more about how do they become financially sustainable and scale by m- making some profits, or at least getting some revenues. And so, I'm what I'm seeing. And you know, I did interviews with over 200 organizations in the course of writing this book. And what I'm seeing is more and more the most interesting, most groundbreaking organizations are operating at the intersection. They may be for profits, they may be nonprofits, but they have some elements of both.
0: And May, in your book, one of the things that you talk about is the value proposition canvas developed by my friend Alex Osterwalder, who's been a guest on this show more than once. So, can you explain for us the concept of, of product market fit in the context of social impact?
1: Sure. For people who aren't familiar with product market fit in the business world, typically when you're developing a solution, you start by trying to find what we call product market fit, which is and and to do so, you vary your product, you look at, you know, what things you may need to change about your product and you vary your market and you try to find an intersection where your product is something that's needed and wanted and demanded by a market. When, when it comes to social good, we need to think about it slightly differently because our market is generally fixed. If you're working with you know, disadvantaged youth who have never had a job in South Africa, you can't all of a sudden decide, oh, well, I'm going to go to the youth who have already graduated college because they're going to want my product and be able to afford it. Um, you, when we're talking about social good, usually the market is the thing that we're trying to, to address. Um, and so. It's a, it's a little bit different. We we then have a f- fewer degrees of uh, flexibility, and we need to focus more on how do we vary our product or service to really meet the market, um, and that means often deeply understanding the quote unquote market or the beneficiaries that we're trying to serve. Um, one great example I like is um, there's a nonprofit in uh, so, or social enterprise rather in Myanmar called Proximity Design, um, and the husband and wife team when they decided to work with smallholder farmers in Myanmar who are some of the most disadvantaged people living on less than $2 a day, they decided to pick up and move to Myanmar um, so that they could be close to their customers and really understand their needs. And This allowed them to engage farmers in the process of designing their products. And be able to test them with, with, with real farmers in real conditions on often a daily basis as they're iterating and improving their products. So, for example, they uh, created a, a lightweight and portable and low cost treadle pump that allows people to pump groundwater um, out to be able to irrigate their crops. And you know, from a product market fit standpoint, you know, you might design a very fancy trellis pump, but if your smallholder farmers can't afford it, or it's too heavy for them to be able to move around or whatever, you know, that's not going to work. You can't just go up market and, and offer it to you know wealthier farmers because that's that's the whole point is to is to help the you know poorest and most disadvantaged farmers, and so you know they really focused on that audience understood their needs intimately engaged them in the design process engaged them in the iteration process and as a result, they've been able to develop a number of products and services that have really helped smallholder farmers in Myanmar. Now, they've, um, to date, reached about 80% of the smallholder farmers and, on average, increased their incomes by $250 a year, which is a lot when you're talking about starting out with less than $2 a day.
0: So, To be very, very clear about what your, quote-unquote, market is or the population that you're trying to serve, what who they are and being precise about what they need. That's kind of the essence of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think in the social sector, it's essential to understand who your market is, who, who are generally your beneficiaries, um, but also really, really understand what their needs are, not what you might project their needs are. And this is another thing that makes it harder in the social sector is, you know, when I was at Google building products like Google Maps and Gmail for mobile phones, these are products I used myself. So I had an innate Pretty good understanding of what was required and and what would you know what people might want. When you're working with people who are very, very different from you, who may come from a different culture, a different upbringing, different um, priorities, you know our assumptions can often be wrong. You know a simple example that I think was really instructive is a company called Delight um, offers solar lanterns to um, generally to low income countries. And when they first were developing their solar lanterns, they decided to test these solar lanterns with people and, and just got a few different options out there. Before they were manufacturing their own, their, their MVP was just to take a bunch of solar lanterns that exist in the market that were maybe too expensive, but see what people liked. Um, and they expected that people would like, because this is what we like in the US, the sort of warmer, more yellow-colored lights. You know, we, we like, you know, that that's sort of what feels good to us in the US. But it turned out that most people Actually, preferred the blue, harsher lights. You know, more fluorescent style light because that felt more aspirational to them. Like the yellower lights reminded them of you know burning candles um, in their home, whereas the bright blue lights, you know, blue blue tinge lights, seemed more like the fluorescent lights they saw in the town, um, and that felt more aspirational to them. So it's a simple example, but it, it highlights the point that our assumptions can often be wrong. And we need to really get close and intimate to the customers we're trying to serve to understand what their real needs and priorities are versus what we might project.
0: Okay, that's uh, pretty interesting. And I, I, I think this issue of really understanding uh, your market and trying to go beyond your own personal experience and personal bias equally applies to startups as well and business products.
1: I think it equally applies to startups, but start with startups. The, the customers we're trying to serve are often not quite as different um, as when we're working in the social sector, and so we we have a little bit of a head start, I would say.
0: That's for sure. Uh, we're we're almost out of time, but one of the things that you speak about in the book that I really want to hear about is this notion of vanity metrics, and not to be seduced by vanity metrics. Can you explain that for us?
1: Yeah, so vanity metrics is a term that Eric Ries coined in the Lean Startup, and uh, it refers to absolute numbers, typically, that sound really good but don't indicate whether something's actually any good. Um, So, just as an example, in the social sector, if you look at your favorite nonprofit's website, they'll usually tell you how many people that they've reached, touched, served, benefited in some way. But if you think about, you know, if if I say that I have… Touched a, a million people or helped a million people, what does that mean really? You know, I may have done something for them. I may have trained them. I may have given them a product or service, but did it make their lives better? It doesn't say that. Um, and even if we knew we made their lives better, could somebody else have made their lives better, done more with the same amount of money? Um, you know, is it the most cost effective solution? Um, is another question. And the third is that. Even if we, you know, made their lives better and were more cost effective than other solutions, and so we did the best we could with the money, um, do we have a path to scale, or are we only reaching a small, tiny fraction of the people who could benefit? And so, instead of thinking of these absolute numbers of how many people did we touch, which tends to drive organizations to just reach more people without sufficient regard to how well it's working or how how we're going to scale. Um, the in the lean startup and lean impact we talk about actionable metrics or innovation metrics that are generally at the unit level. So it's it's a looking at for every hundred people we reach, how you know, what percentage are um accept accept what we have to offer, how what percentage are successful, how what percentage change their behavior, and at what cost? What's the unit cost um, for each person that we reach? And so when if you think about these unit metrics, if you're able to optimize for them so that the percentage behavior changes increase or the the dollars that are required for the training decrease. Those are all things that will be highly leveraged and increase and just magnify impact over time as you scale. And so those are the metrics that when you're doing when you're focused on innovation that you want to be tracking on a regular basis to understand are we moving the needle on these metrics that matter versus the aggregate numbers which is just a measure of activity not of progress.
0: So that's a real key thing the vanity metrics are a measure of activity not progress.
1: Yes. MA, as
0: we finish up, what advice do you have for social impact programs or businesses that want to engage in social impact as opposed to nonprofits? Anybody who, who would like to adopt the, the lean startup techniques you've been describing and they're not sure what to do?
1: So there's a couple simple ways to get started. I think, as with everything, um, it's important not to let perfect be the enemy of the good. So, um, two two things I'd suggest that are easy things you can do today. The first is, um, as Steve Blank says, get out of the building. You know, rather than trying to perfect a solution in the confines of your office and in meeting rooms, get out of the building and try things with people. Talk to people. Talk to your customers put things in front of them and see what they do, not just what they say, but see what they do. Um, and you don't have to have the perfect minimal viable product. But once you get out in front of people and start seeing what they're doing, you're going to start learning and it will start the cycle of you then improving things and you know both your test itself as well as your product or service. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say that is difficult to do um, often in the social sector is to play devil's advocate both for yourself and for your colleagues. Um, I think because we are all trying to do good in this world, there is a tendency for us to just pat each other on on the back because, hey, you're doing good, so whatever you came up with, we want to encourage people because, after all, you're trying to make the world a better place. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't ask the hard questions to say, okay, it's great you're doing good, but here are the things that might go wrong you know let's understand those things so that we can actually deliver good uh, i think a lot of times whether it's a business or a nonprofit we are too easily satisfied by doing some good and i think we should raise the bar just as companies are required to maximize shareholder value i think if we're tr- talking about making an impact we should be required to be maximizing social impact
0: and thus your concept of having a big bold audacious goal
1: exactly you know Think big, have a big audacious goal, and start small to figure out what's the best way to get there.
0: Okay. Well, we're out of time. That's been a very quick 45-minute conversation. We've been speaking with Anne-Mae Chang, who's the author of the book, Lean Impact. anne May, thanks so much for being with us today. I really do appreciate that.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Michael. It's been a pleasure.
0: Check out cxotalk.com. We have lots more videos. And be sure to subscribe on YouTube. Have a great day, everybody, and we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye bye.